Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, Eastern family. Thanks for tuning us in. From 1927 until Eastern's last flight in 1991, the men and women have lived the history of our great airline. We are presenting these memories and stories with our radio show, Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, as told by its people. We can't even imagine how, in the early days, the pilots flew open cockpit mail planes in all types of weather with very little or no navigational equipment except light beacons, landmarks, and other visual cues to reach their destinations. Many of the early pioneers even lost their lives to get the mail through. Some were even heroes to people along the mail route from New York to Miami by spotting fires of homes and businesses, then turning their mail planes to the affected property, circling and alerting those on the ground about the impending danger. This was a type of concern Eastern people displayed over the years. We read a story of June, 
a couple of episodes ago, and the same concern led June Hatton to pay for an airline ticket for a soldier returning home to be with his family. He could not afford the cost, so she paid for the flight. It's typical of the Eastern employee. I remember receiving medical help when I first was hired by Eastern and still on probation at six months with the company. Eastern paid all of my wife's hospital bills when she had a stroke and gave me the time off that I needed. This was the company we worked for, ladies and gentlemen. I'm more convinced than ever, looking back at those wonderful years we had with Eastern, that the legend will live on long after we are gone. With the memories we share every Monday evening and stories yet to be written, Eastern will not be forgotten, even by our descendants. If you have a story to tell, we want to hear from you. So stick around to the end of this broadcast, and we'll tell you how to go about getting it on the air. Now, Linda and Harry, let's tell the story of Eastern as told by its people. What happens to old commercial airliners? Most of them end up uh, either in the desert for storage or maybe uh, the scrapyard. But here's a story about one such uh, retired airliner that is still uh, can be seen. And the story is called A Promise Kept by Ralph Patterson, and it comes from the book The Wings of Man. Restoring an Eastern Airlines DC-7B. In a world when a person's word can be broken and a handshake is no longer binding, there are people you can still count on. Carlos Gomez and Mark Wolf, by keeping Joe Coker's dream alive, are examples of such people. Joe is not with us today, but his beloved former Eastern Airlines Douglas DC-7B has been restored to airworthy condition, and that is a promise kept. This is one man's dream. DC-7B, number 836 Delta, was delivered to Eastern Airlines on January the 23rd, 1958, at the dawn of the jet age. The reign of Eastern's 49-strong DC-7B fleet was short, with the last aircraft retired in October 1966. Most were sold to California Automotive, which bought N836 Delta in September 1965, and parked it along with many others in the desert at Lancaster Foxfield, California. Nomads, a Detroit-based air travel club, bought the aircraft in 1966, but by 1971 it had been replaced by a Lockheed Electra. Joe Cocor founded the 20th Century Travel Club and purchased this plane in 1972 with the intent of operating out of his hometown, St. Paul. For 32 years, Joe Cocorp kept his dream alive to get the DC-7B back in the air. He would occasionally run the engines, perform maintenance, and move the aircraft around downtown airport to keep it away from the flood-prone Mississippi River. Carlos Gomez became aware of Joe's DC-7B in 2003. Later that year, in concert with Mark and Marlene Wolf, he formed legendary airliners with the express intent of purchasing and restoring the aircraft. Carlos is co-owner of Florida Air Transport and has plenty of experience operating vintage Douglas prop liners from his home base at Opelika, Florida. 
What made N836 Delta so attractive is that it is the sole surviving DC-7 with an original passenger interior. Carlos inspected the aircraft in November 2003. After spending a few hours on a very cold airport ramp, Carlos made Joe an offer. Later that day, they shook hands on a deal. Carlos now had his airplane, but starting to work on the Olay airliner would have to wait for the end of the Minnesota winter. On May the 22nd, 2004, Carlos, his father Martin, and Mark's father-in-law, Larry Bruner, left Miami for St. Paul. Their inspection confirmed what Carlos had determined on his initial check. The D-7B was essentially sound but needed work before the flight to Florida could be undertaken. After removing years of accumulated bird's nest, the right double-row turbocyclone R3350 engines were run successfully at low power settings the week of June 13th. Over the next few weeks, the engines were run at progressively higher power settings with no problems. All fuel lines, oil lines, and fuel injection pumps were replaced. Control cables were lubricated, and those that couldn't be salvaged were replaced. Not unexpectedly, the outer wing panels had some corrosion, but this wasn't severe enough to delay the ferry flight to Opalaka, where they would be replaced. The rudder was replaced with one that Joe Cocor donated. <clears throat> Things were looking good for a departure to Florida, but during a high-speed taxi test on July the 8th, the number four engine experienced a master rod bearing failure, which required an engine replacement. The crew returned to Florida to collect an engine and take a much-needed break. On July the 22nd, they were again heading north with an engine and four props from a DC-7B freighter owned by Carlos. An airworthiness directive had been issued by the FAA in 1982 for the inspection of DC-7 props for corrosion and this obviously had never been completed. With the replacement engine and four AD-compliant props, the group arrived in St. Paul on July the 24th. By sunset, the, the R3350 had been hung and was ready for testing the following day. The group began the task of addressing a number of minor problems that needed correction. Then the number one R3350 experienced a bearing failure. A replacement was brought from Miami, and the engine changed, on August 3rd and tested successfully the next day. The flight crew arrived from Miami on August 5th and high-speed taxi tests were completed later that day. A ferry permit was issued and the next day was used to tie up loose ends. On Saturday, August the 7th, the plane departed from St. Paul on its first flight in more than 32 years. In command was Captain Frank Moss with First Officer Sadi Barraza and Carlos performing flight engineer duties. Four hours later, the airplane arrived at DeKalb Peachtree Airport near Atlanta. A large and enthusiastic crowd of former Eastern Airlines employees greeted N836 Delta and the crew upon their arrival. After an overnight stop, the aircraft left at 1600 and arrived at Opelika two hours and 50 minutes later. Defying the skeptics who said it couldn't be done, Carlos had the DC-7 be airworthy in less than three months. It turned out getting the old airliner fit for the flight to Opelika would be the quickest part of the entire project. Restoration began in earnest on, in October 2004, and by February 2005, much of the interior had been removed, and six sheet metal workers were laboring full-time to replace corroded fuselage skin panels. 
Skin corrosion was worse than originally thought, and eventually most of the upper fuselage was reskinned. Engines 1 and 4 were removed for overhaul, and six additional R3350s were purchased as spares. By June 2006, the reskinning of the left side of the fuselage was complete, and workers turned their attention to the right side. The outer wings were removed and replaced with one salvaged from a DC-7C. The interior of the aircraft had been completely gutted and was finally ready for installation of wall panels, seats, and carpeting. Lentile Textiles donated carpet and panel material for the project. Working with the designers from Lentile, Carlos decided to replace the original green and cream colors with a gray and blue interior. The original seats could not be economically salvaged for flight use or replaced, or replaced in storage. Modern seats donated by Quality Aircraft Interior were refurbished and installed. Both original lavatories were also beyond economic restoration, and Carlos obtained two replacements from a local company scrapping former Northwest Airlines DC-9s. They fit the DC-7B perfectly, and period fixtures were salvaged from the original units. In October 2007, the FAA had issued a ruling that allowed historically significant aircraft to carry passengers. The program was, allowed, was developed to allow owners to generate funds for the preservation of their aircraft by offering flights to the general public. The ruling stated the aircraft had to be owned by a tax-exempt tax entity. This historical flight foundation was born with the goal of preserving and operating classic prop airliners. HFF received tax-exempt status in May 2008, and N836 Delta was transferred from legendary airliners to HFF in December in 2009. In addition to providing flights to nowhere, Roger and Carlos wanted to offer rides to HFF members on positioning flights. After a number of discussions with the FAA, it was decided the only way would be to operate the aircraft in full compliance with FAR Part 125. Airshow flights would still be offered, but by operating under Part 125, HFF would be able to offer city-to-city -city flights to members, very much like travel clubs have done in the past. Working closely with the FAA's South Florida Flight Standards District, Work began to complete the necessary items before planned July 24th departure for Oshkosh. Roger obtained a Boeing 727 emergency slide, which was tested successfully on May the 28th. With the help of STG Aerospace, emergency floor lighting was installed. A TCAS uh, traffic collision avoidance system unit was borrowed from a DC-7B. On America's 234th birthday, July the 4th, 2010, N836D made its first post-restoration flight. Captain George Riley, First Officer Eduardo Blanco, and Flight Engineer Carlos Gomez pronounced the 40-minute excursion uneventful. Carlos added, she wanted to keep going faster, and I had to keep pulling power back to slow her down. She wants to fly, and we aim to let that happen. And now a postscript to this article about this uh, DC-7. After a successful 2010 air show season, N836 Delta completed its first international flight in May 2011 when it flew round trip between Miami and St. Martin. On November 18, 2011, N836 Delta flew from Opelika to Charlotte with Miracle on the Hudson 
Captain Chesley Sullenberger, and First Officer Jess Skiles with 50 guests and media on board. The occasion was the official unveiling of the display at the Carolinas Aviation Museum of the U.S. Airways Airbus A320 that ditched on January the 15th, 2009 after a double bird strike. While taxiing out for the flight back to Florida, vibration was experienced from the number three engine, but the decision was made to leave. Two minutes after takeoff, oil pressure was lost, the engine was shut down, and the aircraft returned to Charlotte without further incident. Because of the expense of, recur of securing at least one replacement airworthy R3350, as well as the financial viability of the operation, the DC-7B, which was deregistered in November of 2014, remains at Charlotte adjacent to the Carolinas Aviation Museum, which has been named the Sullenbugger Museum. Currently, that uh, museum was closed, but is scheduled to reopen in, 2000, in the summer of 2024. So if you're in that area this summer, maybe you can go by and look at that eastern DC-7B. awkward. Um, not very friendly. Ah, uh, but she's too young. Oh, she's, uh, oh, she bites nails. She wears glasses. I, I, I honey, I, no, no, the other, uh, oh, now, oh, she's married. Well, uh, well, Eastern presents The Losers. Immature. 19 out of 20 girls we see never get to be an Eastern Airlines stewardess. They're probably good enough to get a job anywhere they want. But at Eastern, we're very choosy about whom we let serve you on a plane. It may make our job a lot harder, but it makes your flying a lot easier. We want everyone to fly. Oh, the girl with the glasses. Uh, no, the, uh, honey, uh, wait, uh, if you... Now let's continue with the saga of Flight 85 in Part 2. We'll find out if the uh, plane landed safely. 85 to New York. We're circling at 2,300 feet and descending over a town on the edge of a river. We can see down through the stuff, see a large electric sign and a water tank. Call CBS and NBC networks. Ask them if their listeners can locate us. There was an element of excitement in what had been disciplined calm before. One can only imagine the reaction of Captain Eddie. His ship, a part of the great silver fleet, lost in its own environs, calling on radio listeners for help. He swallowed his pride and said, Call him. Almost immediately, the call started. Reports came from Boston to Miami, but the town was soon lost in clouds, and the DC-2 continued its aimless flight in what seemed to be the devil's graveyard. Camden to 85, you just passed over the field. Make a 180 and you'll have it. I was electrified. At last, 85 had found an airport. Camden was talking him down. But then there was an embarrassed silence. It had not been 85. It was 1 a.m. And now the subject changed to fuel on board. Weather for several airports was transmitted, but with little enthusiasm for the pilot of 85 could not orient himself. A good many of Eastern's 1,000 employees were now involved in the vigil. It was shaping up like a major air carrier disaster in slow motion. 
As I watched the flames through the little eastern glass windows of the Arcola, I felt my prayers were futile, but I had nothing else to offer. Pilots at home in the Newark area had learned of the plight of Flight 85, and many raced to the airport to form a brain trust of friends. Dispatcher Bob Rothrock had said that charts were spread out everywhere. Pilot W. Whiprecht and his group compiled charts of information from 85, airport weather, fuel, even hunches of pilots, but nothing seemed to make sense. As the time wore on, a subtle change had taken place in radio exchanges. The mantle of professional bravado was gone. The rigid adherence to formal message structure relaxed. The lifeblood of Ship 323 was rapidly being sucked through its carburetors. Operations knew the flight was nearing its end. In the eerie darkness of the cockpit, the crew, in extremis, had only one fuel gauge to watch. Others read empty. The luminous needle now measured their remaining time in gallons, but they still searched for breaks in the overcast, any glow that would indicate a town or city below. Ship 323 had four fuel tanks, two mains of 180 gallons each, and two auxiliary tanks, each with a capacity of 75, making a total of 510 gallons. Eastern had the reputation of flying when other airlines were grounded, and its pilots covered coveted fuel. There is little doubt the tanks were topped off before departure. Co-pilot Jim Garrigan's son, Jim, himself a pilot, reports an interesting note in the logbook entry of his father for that trip. Gas 540. Newark to 85. How much fuel do you have? Half a tank, came the plaintiff reply. Newark to 85. Which tank? The reserve was a testy response. It wasn't clear whether the crew thought operations was quibbling or if it indicated resignation after more than six hours of futile effort. But the difference was important. At best, there was less than 30 minutes left with one half a reserve tank, and the brain trust was now keeping the chart in minutes. The hands on the clock were fairly racing now. Personnel were drained. With fleeting glances at the clock, they continued to chart phone calls, weather, plot hypothetical positions, and hope. Pilot Whiprick moved quickly to the radio position. Without waiting to relay instructions to the operator, he picked up the microphone. Fred, this is Whiprick. We've got you now over New Britain. With measured calmness, he continued, Fly 040 to Hartford. It's 20 miles. I could picture the pilot turning the big ship for the first purposeful course in over six hours. His eyes now divided between compass and fuel gauge, ears tuned with fear, alert for the dreaded coffee in the engines. The voice of his friend with its startling information brought an audible change in the crew. Subdued despair turned to animated hope. Whip, what's the elevation between New Britain and Hartford? Come down to 500. Terrain low and swampy. The weather's just limited at Hartford. Members of the Brain Trust, dispatchers and radio operators looked at each other and the clock. Calls had been made to Hartford airports require, requesting that all lights be turned on. 85 had been given Hartford weather. 85 to Newark. I can see four towers with obstruction lights. Newark 85. That's Pratt and Whitney. Can you make it? We're going to try, was the determined answer. In what seemed an interminable time. 85 to Newark. We're on the ground at East Hartford. As the operator opened the switch on the microphone to acknowledge, shouts of joy and relief could be heard in the background. Outrageous conduct for an operations office. I started to bank the fire in the Arcola. It was 3.05 a.m. 
and an epilogue to our story of the Saga of 85. The simultaneous reports of the drone of engines overhead from several radio listeners in New Britain, the lifting of the weather at Hartford, and the ability of Flight 85 to fly with tanks that should have been dry were described in the newspapers by Captain Eddie Rickenbacker as the finest aviation job in air transport history. The Brain Trust called it phenomenal luck. Editorials referred to a picky crew who wouldn't give up the ship and stressed the importance of modern ships with tremendous reserve, both in fuel and power. As I write this, I can't help but wonder at John Garrigan's providential 30 gallons of fuel. From my yellow scrapbook, there is yet another explanation. Florence Jones, when it was over, whispered a prayer and said, In a few more minutes, he would not have been able to stay up. I was never more certain there is a God in heaven. And then a couple of footnotes to the story. Uh, the first one, the upper air velocity on January 24, 1938, was later estimated by meteorologists and airline people at between 80 and 100 miles per hour. Uh, for a better perspective on air navigation in the 30s, an excerpt is quoted from Howard Wentz, the left delightful and valuable collection of his days as a co-pilot, plowing the back 40. He says, nobody ever gets lost now, but it was a fairly common occurrence in the 30s. An old axiom, if you've never been lost, you've never been anywhere. The DC-2 had no static device, and very often the range receiver was no good at all. You would just take your phones off and hang them up. Several DC flights were completely lost. One landed at Tuscaloosa, another at Pensacola. A couple of flights out of Chicago and Miami became lost between Louisville and Atlanta and would wind up in places like Lexington, North Carolina, Intermediate Landing Field, and Spartan, Spartanburg, South Carolina. Well, that's the end of the story of Saga 85, but it does kind of make you think, despite of all the travails of modern air travel, uh, maybe the good old days weren't so good. Eastern Airlines serves 26 of our 50 United States. But today, we look beyond assigned flight patterns, and we see the miracle that is America. Her names are written on the land, and the peoples who wrote them are diverse as the land itself. Polynesian mariners landed on the shores of this island from their outrigger canoes and called it Hawaii. The Spanish found this stretch of coastline lovely and named it the Jewel. La Hoya. An Indian tribe cut this name with the flint tip of a feathered shaft. Mojave. In the shadows of the Rockies, our conscience named a settlement Fair Play. Scandinavian mythology swept a plateau that rims the Grand Canyon and called it Valhalla. The French embraced the Mississippi with a parish and they called it Baton Rouge. Tilling this Pennsylvania farmland, German settlers named it Heidelberg. The English settled Cape Cod and called the county Barnstable. E pluribus unum, one from many. This is the miracle we celebrate today. One nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. We celebrate not the final achievement, for there is much still to be achieved. We celebrate the promise, the progress, 
بهو Most of us associate the term a flying circus with German World War I ace Manfred von Richthofen. But here's a story from the best of repartee. Uh, it's titled Nostalgic Memories of Rickenbacker's Flying Circus. My debut with Eastern Airlines was in May of 1939 on a flight from Atlanta to San Antonio in a DC-2. My captain was a brave man. He gave me a landing. We survived and I turned around to taxi back. Then the real work began. Flying a DC-2 was child's play compared to taxiing one. With that handbrake and rudder pedal combination, I went lurching along, over, along, over controlling right and left in a demonstration of how not to taxi an airplane. Finally, I asked the captain if he would like to take it. What for, he said. I think he was really surprised. To keep from stacking the passengers in the aisle, I replied. Ah, to hell with that, he shouted. Of course, what he really meant was that I had to learn to taxi a DC-2 sooner or later, even if it was a rough job at first. But I don't think the cash customers approved of my on-the-job training. Some weeks went by. I had learned to taxi a DC-2. I was co-pilot on a flight from San Antonio to Atlanta with scheduled stops in Houston, New Orleans, Mobile, and Montgomery. The weather was routine except at New Orleans, where it was socked in tight. Nobody was going to land there until the next day at, my, at the earliest. But we boarded three or four New Orleans passengers in Houston, offloaded them in Mobile, and refunded them the price of a railway ticket back to New Orleans. They were not pleased. I heard one of them express himself to the captain. He wanted to know why he had not been informed of the New Orleans weather before we boarded the flight in Houston. He would have taken the train in the first place. By then, I was beginning to suspect that we didn't always put our best foot forward in the public relations department. In fact, as I was to learn in due time, many air travelers regarded us a gang of rough-and-ready barnstormers with little concern for passenger comfort or convenience, and I have to concede that in those primitive days, we did sometimes give them reason to form such an adverse opinion. But there was another side to that coin. Very definitely, I think, Captain Rickenbacker would have said that our policy was to, live, to deliver a better product and let it sell itself, meaning, of course, a superior flight operation. In fair weather or foul, and what a job our rough and ready barnstormers did when the weather separated the men from the boys. On Eastern, the captains enjoyed wide latitude due to their own thinking. It was a regular practice to fly to a destination in marginal weather and then, sometimes with the aid of a timely special weather observation, complete the flight, when other airlines were not operating at all. The weather is stinko. Nobody is flying but Eastern. It was an industry-wide cliché, and it was not just like an idle figure of speech. Most of our older, retired captains will remember a, a notable occasion before weather minimums were established by the CAA, when the weather and Chicago socked in tight and stayed that way for a week or more, and not a single flight operated in or out, with the exception of Eastern, and Eastern didn't cancel a trip. This was before my time with Eastern, but I have verified it with a senior retired captain who remembers it well and knows whereof he speaks. It may have been along about that time that we became known as Rickenbacker's Flying Circus. I don't know. The first time I ever heard that term was after I'd been recalled to active duty with the military in 1942. 
I was associated with other airline pilots who had also been recalled. After we had become well acquainted, we used to needle each other occasionally about the alleged merits and demerits of our respected airlines. I could always hold my own. All I had to say was, on Rickard Backer's Flying Circus, we specialized in flying. They always accepted in a friendly way, with maybe a touch of envy, I think. In fact, it always seemed to me that Eastern was something of a puzzle to the pilots from the other airlines. They hadn't quite figured out how we managed to get by with some of the things we did. On one occasion, a pilot from another airline asked me if it was true that Captain Rickenbacker always carried a pocket full of ready cash to reimburse any captain who was fined by the CAA for violating weather minimums. There was one amusing occasion when, through no fault of my own, and in fact, without even thinking about it, I was regarded as another low-weather Eastern Airlines performer. It was in the summer of 1943 when I was stationed at Sedalia, Missouri Air Base with a troop carrier unit. The troop carrier command headquarters in Indianapolis ran a daily round-trip shuttle between Indianapolis and Alliance, Nebraska, with stops in Sedalia and Omaha. One of my junior officers, who was not a pilot, had been weathered in Omaha for several days, and I needed him in my office. I contacted a friend of mine at the Sedalia base, who had been a classmate of mine in the Army Air Corps, flying school, and after that a co-pilot and a captain on a major airline. Luke, I said, I know you're familiar with the Omaha approach. How about making me up an approach plate? I've got to go and get my lieutenant who has stymied there. He did, and I did. My lieutenant told me later that he was in the control tower when I was on the approach. The tower operator wanted to know, what's an Army flight doing coming in here when Brand X Airlines is passing us up? My lieutenant knew all the answers. This is an Eastern pilot, he said. Of course, there was nothing fair about the comparison. Nobody thought that my Eastern background had imparted to me any knowledge or any skills that the other airline pilots didn't have. Also, the weather at Omaha wasn't as low as it had been reported. So I got some unearned credit, but I didn't object. Those days are ancient history now, and the airline business is a different ballgame. All a matter of pushing buttons, the modern pilots tell me. Well, I'm glad that my flying was done in the old days. Like, for example, when I was a co-pilot on a DC-3 from Atlanta to Chicago with the late J. Shelley Charles early in 1940. Shelley was one of our most spectacular captains. Our Indianapolis station called to inform us that the ceiling there had gone to 200 feet. In those days, the standard minimum was 300 feet, with the limited landing aids that we had at the time. Tell him we'll be right down, Shelley said with a positive delight. He went over the low-frequency range station on final, flew down to 200 feet on the southeast heading to intercept the approach lights at a right angle, then did a steep 180-degree turn to the left, and landed northwest into the wind. He made it look so easy. Nothing to it, just a piece of cake for Shelley Charles. Shelley was the only captain I ever flew with who would land when the weather was reported below limits. What a guy. And what an airline. Thank the good Lord for my early days on Rickenbacker's Flying Circus.
third year in a row, more passengers have flown Eastern than any other airline in the free world. If you've helped make us America's favorite way to fly, we thank you. If you haven't flown Eastern recently, give us a try. We'll show you we really do earn our wings every day. This is your host, uh, Neil Holland, Captain Neil Holland, and here's a story I recall recently and decided that uh, this might be good to insert in our memories of a great airline as told by its people, in this case, me. As a co-pilot or first officer, as they're now called for a major airline, you do what you're told to do by the captain. And you do it unless there is a chance it may lead to hurting someone and or yourself. And then it depends on the person you might hurt or how badly you might hurt yourself. The first aircraft I flew with my airline was a Convair 440, a beautiful twin-engine aircraft seating about 44 passengers. It was powered by two powerful Wright R2800 engines. The more I flew this aircraft, my thoughts were spending my entire career with the airlines on this one airplane, if I could. But, of course, that's not possible as the jets were on their way. My trip had me flying with a captain that I had never flown with before, nor had I heard any favorable or unfavorable comments about him from my peers. We introduced ourselves, and he seemed very friendly and happy to have me sharing his cockpit. We flew our legs to our destination, Layover City, which was Louisville, Kentucky, with a 15-hour layover at a downtown hotel. Back in the early 60s, our airline pilot union had not yet negotiated separate rooms for the flight crews. On a two-man crew, it meant sharing a room with the captain. This meant the captain decided which bed he wanted, whether he got the window by the, the window bed or uh, the, uh, the bed that was closest to the bathroom. It was his decision, just like on the aircraft. Well, the hotel had two full-size beds, and of course, one was nearer to the window and the air conditioning unit. I got the bed near the window. Next was... Who showered first? The captain, of course. After I had my shower and PJs on and before lights went out, the captain asked me to kneel by my bed as he did his to say a prayer before going to sleep. And on my knees I went. Now on probation, you're still on the job, even on the layovers. And after we decided the prayer should be, or after he decided the prayer should be over, he rose up and slipped into his bed. I stood up and went to the window to close the curtains for the night. The hotel had a wing about 50 feet or so parallel to ours. One could look across into the rooms in the parallel wing, which I did. One window about two floors down had its curtain curtains wide open and room lights were on. You just couldn't miss what was happening with the man and woman occupying that room. 
I had to tell my captain about this before he turned in, or should I? After all, we had just been talking to the Lord on our knees. Oh, what the hell. He came over to see what I was talking about, and I left him staring out the window after I pulled up the covers and fell asleep. I don't know how long he stayed glued to the window, but probably after the show was over. He probably should have gone back down on his knees to ask whomever to erase what he had just seen. Oh, the life of a first officer on probation. But I'd do it again in a Hong Kong second. Eastern Airlines presents a flight of imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. Most of us associate the term a flying circus with German World War I ace Manfred von Richthofen. But here's a story from the best. On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in cabin two just for discount travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New York. Eastern's Transcon. Here's another story that I had uh, the privilege of interviewing Captain Hassan Calloway down in Lakeland, Florida during one of the Sun and Fun air shows. Uh, and um, Eston Fuller and I sat, and uh, Hal Nord sat in the trailer right off from the Quiet Bergman's uh, little house, cottage, or hangar, and enjoyed the, the conversation with Hassan Calloway. And several stories uh, we've already presented, or a few stories anyhow, we've already presented that Hassan uh, had uh, given me, and I put it in the book, uh, The Best uh, the, uh, Correction, uh, The Wings of Many. This is a story that uh, he talks about his DC-3 days when he first checked out his captain. And the story goes, I've had a lot of experience on the DC-3, both in business and commercial aviation. I know for a fact that I'll never die in a thunderstorm because I missed a chance back in 1947. I flew three years and three months when I checked out as a captain with Eastern Airlines. I thought I'd been discriminated against. I was flying a Douglas DST, which is the sleeper, the DC-3 sleeper, which I have some stories that I may go into later on. And But this flight was down to Brownsville, Texas. I had a new co-pilot by the name of Tom Day. He was a very nice young man right out of the service. Back then, the guys coming out of the service had to physically do the route check, and Johnny Payne, another eastern captain, had made it as far south uh, as Corpus Christi, but had missed a connection. 
uh, we were on our way back northbound from Brownsville, Texas, and I, I told John to get on that we would do some paperwork to show that he had gotten on in Brownsville, Texas. We had a full load, 21 people and a baby in the front seat. We left Corpus around 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a course of about 50 degrees up to Houston, Texas, about 45 or 50 minutes away. About halfway, I saw this line of stuff coming across and told the guys it was going to be interesting. I asked John if he had ever flown instruments, and he said, Not much, Captain. I told him, Well, looks like you may have a little chance at it. We went into the stuff, and Tom did pretty well for a while. It was light, black turbulence, and I thought if... It got any more turbulent, I would I would take over the controls. I worked for an estimate. Uh, I worked up an estimate for Houston, Texas, and tried to get it out on the old HF radios broadcasting in the blind, but we never got an answer from Houston. It was heavy over Houston, so I I thought in, that instead of letting down over Houston with the buildings all around, I would go on over to Beaumont. I turned and took a course to Beaumont, which was about 40 minutes from Houston. It got heavier as we flew towards Beaumont, so I told Tom that we would change seats. So Johnny Payne was in the jump seat, and I asked him to get in the right seat. Well, Tom Day got back in the jump seat. Well, it went from heavy to severe and then got worse. We got into some hail that broke the windshield and cut my eye, requiring seven stitches. Bleeding all over the place, I told Johnny, I think I'm, I'm going to lose this son of a bitch. You got to fly it. He was working the throttles, and I was trying to fly it. We went from 4,000 feet to 9,000 feet, and honest to God, at one time we were about 400 feet. The airplane about 70 degrees, gyros spilled at 70 degrees. The gyros had spilled and, and done some nu- some, so numerous of times and tumbling all around. Instead, I, I tried to, to, to set it with the resistance it had. I, I would just punch it where it was and try to stay on it. When I looked out and saw the ground at one time, I, I knew this was about it. We were going to buy the farm. Then all of a sudden, it threw us right out in front of this thing. I looked back, and there was this old green, bilious, boiling cloud. God, it was nasty. I pushed the power up on the engines. It indicated normally about 165, and we were around 130. I looked around and asked if everything was still on. Johnny asked, why it wouldn't go any faster it just wouldn't go we only had about 50 gallons of fuel after having uh, started out with 350 gallons and i said oh man we're in trouble i was glad to be out of that thing and wasn't nearly in as bad trouble now as as i was 10 minutes earlier I said, let's turn around and turn and head southeast about 120 degrees and we'll find a good place on the beach and we'll ditch the airplane. I had all intentions of doing exactly that when I came across a road that ran from Beaumont to Galveston. 
I had flown off course many times in this area and knew the roads. This was a plus. I ran, I ran the, clo the cars off the road flying so low, but knew there was an airport nearby this stretch of highway. When I spotted it and turned base leg, the old thunderstorm and I met about the same time. When I got it, uh, the airplane to the ramp, the winds were about 70 miles per hour and turned us around, sitting dead still at the ramp. Going back to check the cabin, I had never seen such devastation in my life. One of the heavy food cases had gotten loose and had come from the rear all the way forward to where a guy was sitting and hit him, cutting him so badly that it must have taken about 80 stitches to sew him up. The guy in the right rear seat said that his seat belt had come loose and he hit the gal in the next seat and busted his, his nose up pretty bad. There were all sorts of cuts and bruises among the passengers. The worst thing was that my stewardess, Tim Miller, now that's a guy's name, but it was a gal, Tim Miller, was lying face down on the floor in the back with every dish on top of her, bleeding profusely. They took us to the hospital and sewed me up, and we had 21 people on the airplane, and 17 of them were were for various reasons, there for various reasons. Tim was seriously hurt, and she had to have plastic surgery done. Out of that whole fiasco, there was not one sick person. The lady and the baby, the lady and the baby were all right. The reason it wouldn't go faster was that the wing boots were all off, and it looked like the nose had been beaten with a ball-peen hammer. The fabric beneath the elevators was gone and some torn on the ailerons. The mechanics found a cracked motor mount, snapped wing bolts, but were able to patch it up so we could fly it to Miami after about two or three days there. Johnny Payne was the jump seat rider who became the co-pilot. Without him, I wouldn't have the pleasure of being with you guys today. He saved my life. He had the determination to keep me going. I was about to give up, and he would say, Fly the son of a bitch, and we'll get through this mess. Wow. It's been another evening listening to the fascinating stories and memories of a great airline, Eastern. We have plenty more to come during this series of broadcasts, and we hope you are enjoying reliving the times we spent with this legendary company of men and women keeping the great fleet of aircraft in the air and making it one of the largest carriers in the free world. There are so many stories still out there that we want to share with you. It can be one of your stories or memories if you would only tell us. You can do that by writing your story and emailing it to us so that it can be read during one of our future broadcasts. You can email it to enealholland at yahoo.com. That's eneal, N-E-A-L, holland at yahoo.com. And we'll do the rest. Of course, we'll let you know when it will be broadcast. You can also record it in your own voice and send to us at the same email address, enealholland at yahoo.com. 
It must be sent in an MP3 file. Most computers will default recording the recordings in that format or a WAV file. These are the only two formats of voice recordings that our broadcasting server will accept. If you want more information about how to do the recordings, you can call me, Neil Holland, at 904-866-8114, and I'll be happy to walk you through the process. It's very easy, and you'll be sharing more of your memories of our beloved airlines in our broadcast. You'll be taking part in telling the story of Eastern Airlines. Well, that's about all we have for you tonight. And on behalf of Harry, Linda, and myself, we hope you'll be back for more Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, next week at the same time, 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and station blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. Now, good night, Eastern family. We'll see you next week.